Good morning. Welcome. We are jumping into the text early this morning and then going to come back and engage in more worship and song and a time of communion in just a little bit. Um, <clears throat> but we have been in the series in the book of Mark. We are coming back to that series again this morning. And um, I figured I would start our time this morning with a basic, simple uh principle of biblical interpretation. Maybe you've heard this phrase before, but the principle reads like this. When literal sense makes common sense, seek to make no other sense about it. Maybe you've heard that before. When literal sense makes common sense, seek to make no other sense about it. Simple principle, biblical interpretation reinforced to me in my Bible college times and in my seminary studies um, basically at the heart of Bible interpretation, right? If the passage you're reading is clear, no need to try to make it confusing, no need to search for a hidden meaning or some unique thing, uh, just take it at face value, it's simple, okay? Our passage for this morning is Mark 9, 42 to 50. So you can turn there if you want, it'll also be on the screen. It reads as follows. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. <clears throat> it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another." This is the word of the Lord. So you see what I mean. When literal sense makes common sense, seek to make no other sense about it. Except, what do you do when literal sense makes absolutely no sense whatsoever? And what do you do when the passage contains things like self-mutilation, death, unquenchable hell, and a whole bunch of other confusing elements. What do you do then? Um, <clears throat> it's almost as if the Bible is begging for us to take it seriously. It's begging for us to actually wrestle with it, to think about what's going on, to understand the context, to invite in the author and the author's intent, and for us to begin to kind of wrestle with that this morning. Before we do that, <clears throat> what I want to do is ask you a simple question to think about, to keep in your mind, and feel free to share a thought or two about it. It's kind of two questions, really. They'll be on the screen. What about this passage freaks you out or creates tension? When you read it, maybe some of you are like, oh, yeah, no biggie, I get this. And others of you are like, what? This doesn't sit well. This doesn't feel good. This has confusion in it for me. Or the second question, 
uh, and I think they're similar in some ways. How have you heard this passage used in the past in your religious upbringing? So, <clears throat> we'll take a moment, just shout out a few answers to the, these questions. Uh, what have you heard in the past? How has this been communicated? And is there anything in the passage that creates tension for you in some level? We'll just take about a minute on this, and then we will move into the text. Anyone? The other week you were so responsive, so much chatter. Now we're <laughs> a little quiet. Yeah, anything? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Okay, what else are we feeling? Okay, take sin in your life seriously. That is definitely one of the ways that this passage is brought up. Absolutely. What else? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, growing up Catholic, we can substitute a bunch of other growing up this, that, or the other thing uh, that shame and a lot of feelings of like punishment is coming, and if you step out of line, uh, you will reap that. Were you, you going to say something? Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, so the statement was made that this is probably one of the more like gospel-oriented passage surrounding the subject of hell, and so it's been brought up in relation to eternal punishment and hell at the end of time. Now, all of those, absolutely legitimate, all of those are things that we probably have and will continue to wrestle with. And what I want to do as we look and continue through the book of Mark is to really get into this a little bit this morning. Um, now, here's how this usually works. I'll let you in behind the scenes a little bit. When uh, the staff is thinking through the teaching calendar and is looking at the passages, we knew at some point we would come to this passage and then have to speak on it. And usually what we do is we do a little communal discernment around who should speak this passage and when should it fall on the calendar and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I'll be honest, I was like, this one's interesting. I think I want to look into this one a little bit deeper, in part because uh, I think I had always just taken it at face value of what other people had said it meant, right? Uh, growing up in the church, heard it preached multiple times. It's pretty clear, or at least that's how it was communicated to me when I was growing up. And so I just was like, yeah, I guess it is. Or it's a passage that's kind of confusing, so maybe... Let's just skip over it. But I always just accepted it for what it was. <clears throat> but in full transparency, there was another reason I really was interested in this passage. And that main reason was relational pain. Okay? Here's what I mean. Uh, this passage had me feeling a bit sensitive. And it did because in 2019, we at New Community... Uh, came to the shared understanding as a community that our LGBTQ siblings had all the rights, responsibilities, and privileges, and freedoms as any other family member in the community. And that was probably one of the most humbling and empowering steps that we have been a part of as a community together. And <clears throat> to stand with our siblings and to see and acknowledge that the church has long marginalized this beautiful 
image-bearing aspect of our community. And that was a humbling, humbling thing to admit. And an empowering thing to say that we want to be for justice, we want to be about kingdom-mindedness. And so there was this just beautiful moment in our community that was humbling and empowering, but that came at a cost. Came at a cost with how the city viewed this particular community. <clears throat> to some, this was like an incredible and beautiful and amazing step that this community took. To others, it was a rejection of the gospel, right? And when people <clears throat> don't like your decision, or they feel it violates religious tradition, or for some, the very order of God, uh, there's a tendency to let you know, right? So I'm not sharing this looking for sympathy or anything, but the last seven years, um, seeking to be as inclusive a community as we could be has resulted for me specifically in some what I would call excruciating relational damage. Uh, I lost decade-long friendships. I've had people who, since that moment, has never to, spoke to me again. I've been chewed out by friends and pastors over emails and letters and phone calls and coffees and lunches. Like, doesn't matter where or when. Um, <clears throat> and I won't get into the rest of it, but I will say this one important caveat, that whatever I or the staff or the elders or us as a collective community in any way experienced pales, pales in comparison to what has been experienced by our LGBTQ siblings for years and years of marginalization in the church, right? And no matter what you endure, no matter what you walk through, it does feel at times that uh, it is often words or language that can be the most piercing, the most hurtful, the most damaging. <clears throat> and so different phrases or responses throughout the years have kind of stood out more than others. And this one phrase probably is seared a little bit deeper than the rest in my experience. When I was told, Russ, better for you to have a millstone hung around your neck and be thrown into the sea than for you to lead this community to hell. So, this passage, for me, took on a new meaning as I read it this time. And I went, oh, wow. What did Jesus really mean by this? What was Jesus getting at? And what does he want us to understand about what this text is saying? Because I want to follow Jesus. I want to love Jesus. I want to live for Jesus. I want to be a part of a community that wrestles with the complexity of passages like this and seeks truth no matter how difficult or challenging it might be. And so my hope this morning is that we'll wrestle together with this passage and see where it might lead us. And in order to do that, I figured I would start with a few guidelines that might uh, create some space for us to understand the passage a little better, and then we'll get into the specifics of what this passage might be saying. So here are a couple guidelines. First, we must know where the passage starts and where the passage ends. It's a little thing known as the context, right? 
so you have to remember that all the chapter titles and all the chapters and all the verses were added to the text later. It was just text. And then we put those in there for reference to give us the ability to go back and find a particular place or to say to someone, oh, that was found in this passage, and then we could all know where it was, right? Uh, so Mark gives us a really clear indication of where the passage starts and where it ends. Okay, He does that by starting with a phrase that says, they, disciples and Jesus, came to Capernaum. And then ending with the phrase that says, Jesus left that place. So it's telling us that they came to a space to begin this conversation, and then they left that space. That kind of bookcases, and you could see it up here, 9.33 was the start of the section, 10.1 would be the end of the section. Okay? Number two, we must understand that what is written in this section must be understood in its context, meaning that the whole section must be understood together. It isn't uh, good to just like pull little pieces apart and separate them and go, oh, this means this, this means this, this means that. It's got to be understood in its context. Now, can you learn something from each of the individual paragraphs? Absolutely, 100%. But if you want a more biblical theological understanding of the passage, you have to see it as a whole because it's trying to communicate something collectively with a bunch of layers to it. All right? Which takes us to the third kind of guideline as we begin. The first and last phrase of the context may give indication to its meaning. I say may, right, because it's not always for sure. That's why it's called interpretation. We're trying to figure it out, and we want to figure it out collectively this morning. But that may give us some indication. Meaning that the section starts with this debate which we'll get into in a minute, it starts with a debate between the disciples about who is greatest in chapter 9, verse 33. And it ends with Jesus' imperative in the whole section to say, very clearly, live in peace with each other. So the bracket of this section, to help us understand it, would be the idea of self-interest and pride is opposed by Jesus, saying you should serve and be the least or the last in order to be first. And then it ends with the phrase, be at peace with one another. And that might help us understand this section a little bit better. So my goal is to just go from 9.33 right through 10.1. Help us understand, hopefully, what it's getting at. And along the way, my goal would be just to highlight a few takeaways. I think anytime we're digging into the scriptures, there has to be something that actually applies to what's going on in my present circumstances and in my life. And so if we can say, this is what the text is communicating, and here's how it might be lived out. That's kind of the goal for this morning, all right? So the passage starts off this way. You'll see it on the screen. What were you discussing on the way? But they, the disciples, kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Now this sets the tone for the section, okay? The disciples are having a conversation about who's the best. Who's the greatest? Who should get, you know, the head table, the, be the class pet, the one that's the best? And Jesus understood what was going on in this situation. He understood that the argument was about importance, it was about status, it was about where their role would be in the kingdom of God. Uh, and you can almost imagine the disciples going, well, I think I'm maybe like third, but you? Probably 12th, right? Like, there's a pecking order here. 
and you're not at the top. I might be. I don't want to say I'm first, but so they're having that kind of conversation. And you can imagine the self-importance, the pride, um, this envy maybe between them that was on display in this back and forth conversation. And so Jesus, probably knowing what was going on, just simply says, hey, what are you guys chatting about? Kind of on the way. And they don't say anything. It's like the kid that gets caught with their, you know, like there's cookie crumbs laying around and like, where'd those crumbs come from? I don't know, you know, like, I don't want to answer it because if I answer it, then it's even more trouble maybe. So I'm just going to try to like slink out of the room. That's what the disciples were doing. They were caught. And so Jesus does what he often does in these moments. And he says, well, why don't we have a little sit down and maybe we can talk through this and learn something. And uh, to reveal, really, what he's trying to reveal, I believe, is that there's something that's unique about the kingdom of God as compared to culture and society at large. So, yeah, that might make sense to figure out importance in place in society, but in the kingdom of God, we have a whole different thing going on. And so Jesus, the text tells us, sat down and called the 12 to himself. And then uh, he articulates this important theme when he says that... Um, you must be last and be a servant of all if you are or if you want to be first, right? He's communicating uh, what would be considered a radical reorientation for the disciples. Like whatever you were thinking, I want you to flip the script upside down and think of it totally different. Because again, they likely imagined themselves as having the honored places in the kingdom. And one of them likely thought, besides Jesus, it's probably me. And if there's a couple thrones going on, like Jesus gets the prominent one, I get that. But I, I'd get the second one. I'd be the second most important in the kingdom. And so it was a radical reorientation when Jesus said, look, you're seeking to be first. And I'm telling you that the only way to be first is to actually be last, to be a servant of all. So here's takeaway number one. Humility is a must in the kingdom of God. Philippians 2 speaks to that idea, right? Like, don't look out for your own self-interest. Look out for the interests of others. Humility is an absolute must in the kingdom of God. Well, the disciples, their heads are spinning a bit, and they're kind of confused. And so Jesus does what he often does, and he kind of invites an opportunity for a parable. And the text tells us that he has this little child. He brings the child to the middle of the group, and you can almost imagine them sitting around and he wraps the child in his arms, and then he basically says, this is what it's about, right? And the child is symbolic of a few things. Symbolic, first of all, um, because as he wraps the child, he's explaining that this is your mission. This is your focus. This is what it's supposed to be about. And then he also symbolizes that the little ones are often overlooked, marginalized, and less than. William Barclay describes it this way. <clears throat> a child has no influence at all. A child cannot advance a man's career or enhance a man's prestige. <clears throat> a child cannot give us things. It's the other way around. The child needs things. The child must have things done for him. And so Jesus is saying if a man welcomes the poor ordinary people, the people who have no influence and no wealth and no power, the people who need things done for them, then he's welcoming me. And more than that, he's welcoming God. 
See, to welcome the little one is to welcome Jesus. So here's a second takeaway. Central to our mission is to welcome others in the name of Jesus, especially with love and acceptance of the little one. Okay? The marginalized, the overlooked, the less than. Now, the next section reads this way. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Now here's where things get a little bit more interesting. Jesus is in the midst of telling his disciples that they are to put others before themselves especially the little ones. And he's using this little child as an illustration. They're to walk in humility. They're to be on mission and inclusive of other people. And this is the conversation that's going on. And then the text tells us that in the middle of that, John's like, oh yeah, by the way, I just want to interrupt here for a second, Jesus. Thanks for the parable. Thanks for what's going on. But I just want to let you know that when we were on our way, we stopped someone from doing ministry in the area because they weren't for us or they weren't with us. And so he describes kind of shutting down somebody else's ministry that was going on and says that the reason they shut it down, mind you, is because he did not follow us. That's the literal translation in the text. Because he didn't follow us. Okay? The disciples, or at least John, we don't want to throw all of them into the same boat, Reason that because this person was not one of the 12, not in the Jesus entourage, so to speak, that he should not be doing any good in the name of Jesus. I think the reason was, like, we're the ones that were empowered. We're the ones that were called apostles. We're the ones that have special designation. Maybe... They don't know how to do things the way we do things, or we have the right theology they don't, or we have the right practice of discipleship, and they don't quite get it. But you get the idea. They're saying, like, we shut that down because they weren't doing it like us or with us or for us. And potentially, they're probably highlighting this idea that, man, if we're supposed to be the most important, if somebody else starts doing this gig... Maybe they'll get more important, and so we better figure out how to keep them in their place so that we're prominent still. Here's another little takeaway. When Jesus throws open the door of inclusion and calls you to invite in the little one, it may be worth examining if yours or my first response is to create separation and exclusion. Because it might reveal something is being threatened, right? So as we think about it, when Jesus throws that door open, why wouldn't we also? Now, I wish, we can't, but I wish so badly I could see Jesus' face in the midst of this story. As he's saying this thing and then John interrupts him and it's like, oh, by the way, we shut this thing down. Wouldn't you be proud of us? To see Jesus be like, Are you kidding? Because he comes out and he says, don't stop him. 
It's almost like he's frustrated. He's going, what are you doing? Why did you do that? That makes no sense to me. And you can almost feel the exasperation in Jesus' language. And then he says, anyone who does anything good in the name of Jesus is for us and not against us. Just because they don't do it like we do, or just because they did it under like different auspices or a different strategy or a different whatever, he's saying that, look, that doesn't mean they're not for us. They're with us. Here the us is larger than the disciples imagined. What Jesus is doing is expanding the box of who's included. And Jesus enlarges it to everyone who offers a cold cup of water or a small act of kindness in the name of Jesus should be welcomed rather than excluded. God will welcome them, and God, the text will tell us, will reward them. So it implies, disciples, you also, you also should include them. Now, this brings us to our section of the text. So all of that was kind of introduction to the moment of the section we just read. And I want you to see this section one more time. And this is a little slightly different version or translation because I think it more clearly articulates what's going on here. It says this, Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink on the ground that you belong to Christ, I tell you truly, he will not lose his reward. And whoever puts a stumbling block in the path of one of these little ones who believe in me, it is better for him that a great millstone hang around his neck and he be cast in the sea. Now this is really, really significant and it, it, everything kind of hinges on what I'm about to say. Little ones in this passage is often interpreted as the child that Jesus was hugging in the story or the parable earlier, Right? So the interpretation, what happens is the reader jumps over this section and jumps to the first section and says, see, the little ones is that little kid. And so if anyone guides a little kid the wrong way, it's best to put something around his neck and toss him into the sea, right? Now, what's interesting is that the Greek root word can mean someone who is younger, which is why we often jump to that. But it can also mean someone of lower rank and lesser experience, meaning someone like the unfamiliar man who just cast out the demon. So what I believe Jesus is doing, and I think it makes sense as you read these two verses together, because again, they weren't separated in the original language, they were all together, would be to read it to recognize that they are marginalizing and excluding the little one, this man, who is doing the work on behalf of Jesus. So, another way of saying it. What the disciples did to the exorcist, or this minister, acting in Jesus' name was scandalous because they failed to welcome the little one. They failed to welcome the less experienced. They failed to welcome the one who had a different perspective and so they failed to welcome the one doing good in the name of Jesus. And what the disciples did to this little one, the text says, they were hindering or discouraging him, a stumbling block. And the rebuke to the disciples is harsh. It's pretty strong. Basically, it's saying, look, if you do this to this man, 
it's better for you that you have a three-ton stone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea. Now, if we're to keep this in context, that would mean the religious leaders or the ones who follow Jesus, the ones with the training, the expertise, the ones with the right theology, the correct teaching, the best discipleship. What it's saying is, do not hinder or discourage the other who's seeking to love people in the name of Jesus because to stop that ministry on behalf of who God is, when even a cup of cold water will bring reward, it is better for you to be tossed into the sea. Now here's the takeaway. One should be very careful not to interfere with or discourage and offend someone who's trying to serve God. Okay? Now, I'm going to suggest that this works both ways. Okay, so hear me out for a second. Meaning that the one suggesting to others that they'd be better off dead than continuing to serve as a pastor because they will lead people down the wrong road is discouraging and hindering ministry, and that is not good. It's harsh, right? I will also say, there's a word of caution for anyone, anyone who would take someone who is a faithful and loving pastor who holds a different theological position and then simply throw them under the table and not treat them with love, right? It goes both ways. We're quick. We want to be quick to point the finger and go, don't do that. God wouldn't want that. And at the same time, it, goes, it happens on both sides, even though there isn't sides, right? Because earlier, it's just us. Church across the street, it's us. Church down the road, that's us. Church ministering to predominantly all Ukrainian refugees, that's us. African-American church down the street, that's us. We're all in the same us. All of us. God is a pretty big God. Now the text moves on to a really weird part, the self-mutilation part. Here is where hyperbole is the point. Okay? Again, not literal. This would be Jesus using hyperbolic metaphor. The hyperbole really points to the seriousness of what Jesus regarded as the actions of the disciples. Now, I would also suggest that Jesus isn't dealing with three different sins. I don't think he's saying if this particular sin is present, cut your hand off. If this one is present, your eye. This one is present, your foot, your leg, whatever you need. Like, I don't think he's dealing with three specific things. Again, my personal opinion. What I think is that the whole saying, again, functions as a bit of a parable uh, where he is exaggerating the claim in order to create the one intended idea or meaning, which is to stop trying to limit God's love or stop, stop trying to use power and control, right? So the real temptation that the disciples were likely struggling with was the temptation to exclude others to make comparisons among themselves and to seek to be first. 
to be best, to be right. Quoting Hicks, who is speaking of the disciples, he makes this statement. Because of their pride and kingdom power seeking, they wanted to be first. They had scandalized one of Jesus' little ones, a person who was doing good in the name of Jesus. This approach to kingdom life and the scandals it creates leads to Gehenna, hell. It is a path that leads to destruction. It is better to remove all obstacles to authentic kingdom life than it is to live comfortably with hands, feet, and eyes in a way that leads to hell. It is better, Jesus says, to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown in hell. Jesus reminds them that hell is destruction. It is not a way of life, but a way of death. Kingdom living gives life, but prideful self-exaltation is the way of death or the way of hell. Right? So the very life that is being lived by all of us is an experience of either death leading to Gehenna or an experience of life and the kingdom of God. The worms that are addressed or talked about in this section are talking about feeding on dead bodies. The fire being unquenchable, unquenching means that, the, that what will take place is that it will be fully accomplished, right? It will accomplish its purpose. It's not a picture of uh, pain and eternal torment more than it is a picture of shame and destruction. So again, the takeaway for us in this section is how one is living in the present can either lead to the inbreaking of the kingdom and for us to look around and go, the kingdom is present here and it is present here and it is present all around us. Or it can lead to experiences of Gehenna, destruction, awfulness. Both are possible based on the way we are living out the calling as kingdom followers. The final saying in this section summarizes the kingdom living. The text tells us that kingdom people are salt. Kingdom people are ministers of good in the world or shalom seekers. And this final imperative is live in peace with each other. And that's what unites the narrative, the whole thing, together. So this is the opposite of seeking preeminence in the kingdom. This is the opposite of scandalizing the little ones. Your calling and my calling as a disciple of Christ is to have the salt keep its saltiness, right? Its effectiveness. To continue to live out salt. To love one another. To include, not exclude. To live at peace with one another. To live in peace with the little ones. See, when pride reigns, we are on the path to destruction, to Gehenna. But a true sign of God and God's kingdom reigning in the here and the now is peace among brothers and sisters and all siblings. One final takeaway. We'll end with this quote. Radical kingdom reorientation saturates this text. Disciples are servants of all. Disciples welcome others. They welcome little ones even when it appears a threat to their own status. Disciples would rather cut off their own hand than scandalize another who is doing good in the name of Jesus. Disciples live in peace because they love the kingdom 
more than their own lives. May that be true of us.